as well. Hey, uh, so this week, um, I traveled to a place many of you would say, why would you go there during this season? I traveled to Washington, D.C., where everyone just gets along. Um, I, I serve on an advisory team, a, a board of a church up in, um, in Fairfax, Virginia, which is just kind of to the south and west of D.C. It's a beautiful area. I love going up to visit. And um, when I fly in, I always, um, if, if I can, and I, and I arrange my travel, if you're flying into D.C., and you fly in from the north, if they route you from the north into Reagan National, and you sit on the left side of the plane, I, I go way too often, you can already tell. If you sit on the left side of the plane next to the window, you get a view of the mall and all the monuments as you're landing in Reagan. Some of you know what I'm talking about, right? Now, when you take off, if you head to the north, if you take off to the north, that's how you have, if, if, if you're routed that way, and you sit on the right side of the plane, you get this picture of you know, the Washington Monument, uh, the Jefferson Memorial, the Mall, the Capitol, all of that. So I love kind of taking you off and sitting on the right side of the plane and just seeing this unbelievable view, and they have you kind of bank real quick. Um, just beautiful. And um, this week, I was with the team, and, and we're in the church there in, in Fairfax. We're also building a children and youth center like we are here. And, um, oh, quick side story. Um, sometimes I chase rabbits. Uh, we're, we're building uh, a, a children's youth center there as well, and one of the things we talked about on the advisory team is the amount of debt we're taking on to do this. And I just kind of smiled. And um, I talked about our youth and, and children's center, that we're building debt-free. Come on. So I know you're not supposed to brag, but I might have bragged on you all just a little bit, your generosity. And we're getting close. We're getting close to being able to do this debt-free and outfit it. So it's exciting. Anyway, so um, a couple members of the board there work, work for the government, and I was asking them all kinds of questions like, what do you think is going to happen? You know, what's, what's going on? And, and tell me about the strategies of the candidates and, you know, what, what are they saying inside, you know, the government? And um, I'm fascinated right now, right? Tomorrow is the first presidential debate and just kind of fascinated um, by how crazy it will be and um, interesting it will be. And um, they told me an interesting thing that in D.C. and within the government, there's just this understanding that most every presidential candidate, when they begin to, to kind of set their priorities and, and, and their agendas and what they're going to do, most people understand in, inside the government that they really have no power to achieve the things that they say they're going to do. And most people just take this and understand it in the government, and so they don't worry about what the candidates say at this point. And I found that fascinating. I said, so you don't think that they're really going to try to do the things? And they said, well, they're going to try some of them, but really they don't have the power because of the checks and balances of the government. They don't really have the power to do it. And I say, well, then why do they say so much? And they say, because they're, they're trying to get you to vote for them for the things that you want. So they say things that they don't actually plan to do. And then I remembered something that I read in James. How's that for a little transition, right? <laughs> Now, we're going to open up, and we're going to start in James chapter 1 today. I know we're on chapter 2. We're going to get there, but it, it made me think, when I, when I heard this, that, that, that these candidates say things with their mouths that they actually don't believe they can achieve within their hearts, and they, they really don't believe they can achieve it. 
I was just thinking of this James passage. Now, um, Peterson, Eugene Peterson, says this, and, and we started the series with this. Wisdom is not primarily knowing the truth, although it certainly includes that. It is actually skill in living. So what we're after in this series, and what James, I think, is after in his teaching, is to help us not just know something, but to do something. To, to know how to live with skill, how to live in a way that honors God, how to live in a way that, in a, in a sense, reflects the life of Jesus to the world around us. So here's what James says in James chapter 1. But be people who do the word, not merely people who hear it. And then James includes this little phrase that I think is fascinating. If we are people who just listen to the word of God, whether it's teaching on Sunday morning, whether it's reading through James, and hopefully you're reading through James, we're doing this as a community, kind of reading through during the week, uh, whether it's reading through or in your small group or in your car, if we are just people who listen, hear it, but we don't do anything with it, James says that we are deceiving ourselves, that we're deceiving ourselves. Well, how are we doing that? If we just listen, but we don't do anything, how are we deceiving ourselves? Well, I think James knows, and I think this was true in the first century as much as it is today, that many of us, just by coming to this place on Sundays and hearing something, we automatically assume that maybe we're in. We were here. And we listen to something that may sound good to us, but if we don't walk it out, it actually doesn't affect who we are. And James says that if you just listen and you never do anything about it, then you're just deceiving yourselves. You're just going through some motions which actually don't have any roots to them. And then he gives us an example. Someone who hears the word but doesn't do it is like a man who looks at his natural face in the mirror. He notices himself, but then he goes away and quickly forgets what he looks like. Now, in the first century, this is, this is difficult for us. James was painting a picture that would have been very relevant to them in, in this day and age. In the first century, there weren't many mirrors around. So in our homes, we have mirrors just about everywhere. We have a mirror in our car. We have a mirror in our bathroom. We have a mirror by the door that we leave by. Some of us do. Some of us have many mirrors in our purses. I don't carry a purse, but some of you carry purses. And you have many mirrors in there so you can see yourselves. Um, so we have mirrors everywhere, and we have pictures. But in the first century, they had none of this. And so James is giving them an example that they can understand. And he's saying, most of you don't actually know what you look like, but when you see a mirror, you get a quick image reflection, and you get a glimpse of what you look like. You get a glimpse of who you really are, what other people see when they look at you. And if you're someone who just glimpses at the word of God, or if you just listen to it, and then you go away and it has no effect on your life, then you're like that person who totally forgets what they look like. They walk away from that mirror and they never remember that they have a piece of celery stuck between their teeth. They don't do anything about it. Uh, when our kids were younger, we made this conscious decision to try to build into them who they are. And so when, we, when they ask a question, can I do this or can I do that, and we make a comment, no, you can't do that, and they say, why? Sometimes it's because I said so. But other times we say, because that's not who we are. 
Have you ever said that to your, your kids, those of you who have kids? That, that's just not who we are. We, don't, we just don't do that. And what James, I think, is saying is that when you listen to the Word of God or when you read the Word of God or when you're in a small community and you're talking about the Word of God, you're actually getting a glimpse of who you are. Like God is trying to reveal by His Word who you really are. And if you walk away from that and don't do anything to reflect the truth of who you are, you're only deceiving yourself. You're only deceiving yourself. Now, just for a moment, I want to let one truth sink in for all of us, if it can. And I think from the beginning of Scripture to the end of the Scripture, we find this truth just nailed again and again and again, and some of us just need to be reminded every week of this. And here it is. Here it is. I am a child of God. Now, for many of you, you're like, okay, let's get on with the rest of this. But I, want you to, I just want this to sink in. For all of us. I need it for me. You need it for you. You are a child of God. You're a child of God. You're you're desperately loved and pursued by your heavenly father. Regardless of where you are in life, what you've done in life, the pursuits and paths that you are currently on, your heavenly father desperately loves you and you are his child. You've been adopted by your Father in heaven, by the creator of all the world. Now, it's easy to forget this. It's easy to lose sight of this in the day-to-day lives that we all live. But Scripture reveals again and again and again, you're a son, you're a daughter of God. You've been adopted into the kingdom. You know what he says in Scripture? Things like this, that you are not condemned, but you're a conqueror. You're an ambassador for God. You are dearly loved. Scripture says, um, when I was flying into D.C. This, this week and I saw the monuments, they're just beautiful. And a new monument opened, uh, a new Smithsonian opened this week. It's, it's, all of it's just beautiful. When you fly in, you're just overwhelmed by the beauty. And if you see it at night, if you ever go to D.C., do a night tour because they light up all those beautiful white buildings. Um, they, it's just gorgeous. And then when I fly in to Phoenix, I just see the beauty of these mountains. Just how stunning it is. The sunrises and sunsets are the best in the entire world. Do you guys realize that we have the best sunsets in the entire world? I just lived in Oklahoma for two years. But scripture says this, that you are God's masterpiece. I mean, we get up and we see the sunrise, or as you're going to bed, you see the sunset, and you think, that's just unbelievable. Look at what God did with his handiwork. Look what he just painted in the sky. But, but that is not God's masterpiece. You are. I am. And we look in the mirror, and we, ha- we have a hard time believing it. We see ourselves. But scripture says, no, 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 you You're a child of God. You're a masterpiece created in his very image. And so James would say that if you hear that and then you walk away and you don't do anything about it, if you actually don't live up to that, if you don't live like that's true, then you're only deceiving yourselves. I'm only deceiving myself. I 
am a child of God. Hey, say that with me. Ready? I am a child of God. I'm a child of God. That should overwhelm us with just the knowledge that we're heirs to his kingdom, that everything we see in this world, it's ours because it's his, right? Um, I was reading some, some commentary this week, and N.T. Wright, about this passage, he makes this, this statement. He says, we've discovered so much, we've learned so much, we've invented so much, and yet are still without the power to do many things that really matter. Even though Scripture, like, bubbles these things up, causes these things to, to stir within us from time to time. We've invented wonderful machines for making war, but nobody yet has found one that will make peace. Isn't that interesting? And he goes on. He says, we can put a man on the moon, but we can't put food into hungry stomachs. We can listen to the songs the whales sing on the ocean floor, but we can't hear the crying of human souls in the next street over from us. We, we toil and we spend all of our times inventing and creating and managing and building up things that are important in the world, but not the things that are most important. Because what is most important in this world, what it all boils down to, is one simple word, and that word is love. It's what it all boils down to to come to understand that you are loved by your heavenly Father who's adopted you and you've been called to simply love your neighbor in the same way, to simply reflect that love to them. It's, it's the most important pursuit in all the world. Uh, as far as the good Father is concerned, pure, unsullied devotion, um, N.T. Wright, this is part of his translation, um, his paraphrase, he's, he's, he's from Europe, so I love some of the language he uses. As far as God the Father is concerned, pure, unsullied devotion works like this. You should visit the orphans and widows in their sorrow and prevent the world from leaving its dirty smudge on you. <laughs> that the, the pursuit, what it means to live as a child of God is to stand with those who have been left all alone in this world. to share love with them, to give them our best. Uh, one of the things that James says, and I'll let you read this um, on your own, he talks about staring into the, the, the law of freedom. He speaks about the Bible as a law of freedom, which is a little confusing to me. I'm like, is it law or is it freedom? Which one is it? Because if I have law, I'm not sure I have freedom, right? If I have freedom, I don't have any laws, right? And then... As I was thinking about this, what would happen today if every single one of us went into the parking lot and we got into our cars and we realized that there were no laws to govern driving any longer in our city? There were no stop signs. There were no red lights. Now, some of you with the big jacked up trucks, you'd be all pumped up about this because you win, right? But there's no right side of the road to drive on. There, there's, there, there's no law to govern how you drive. You just get to go. And on first thought, we think, well, that's not so bad. But then you realize, wait a minute, it's actually the law that gives me freedom to get where I need to go. Because if there was no law to drive, how to drive, which side of the road to be on, and no stop signs, it would be complete chaos, right? 
It's actually law that leads to freedom. And this is what, this is what James is saying, is that when we stare into God's law or into what it means to be a child of God, it's, it's not restrictive. It's not restrictive in the sense that you have to do this and you can no longer do this over here. No, no, it's not restrictive. It's actually giving freedom to us to live as we were created to live. This is what the law of freedom is. What is important is this. Faith expressing itself in love. So now we can move to chapter two. That's where we were supposed to start today. Sorry about that. I just was reading that in chapter one and it really ties into chapter two and I thought we should start there. Be people who do the word, not just who hear it. So he expounds on this in chapter two. He says this, what use is it, my dear family, if someone says that they have faith and they don't have works? Can faith save such a person? What use is it? If you say that you believe something, faith, this idea of faith is like, like complete trust, like leaning into something, right? So what use is it if someone says they, they trust God but they don't have anything on the external of their life to actually show this. Is that of any use to anyone? Um, from time to time in my life, um, I've had people come up to me and give me um, stock tips. Have you ever received a stock tip? And sometimes they're good stock tips. I don't have enough money to, to actually lose a lot and be okay with it, and so I'm very careful if I ever have, actually have money to buy stocks. Um, which stocks that I buy. But a couple of times, I've made really bad mistakes. And you know what I've done? I've bought stocks that people told me that they had faith would like double or triple in value, but they actually didn't put as much money into the stock as I did. Now, who's foolish now? Right? And I realized that this is a little bit of what he's saying. This, this idea of... of you say you have faith, but you don't have anything to show for that faith. If you really believe that this stock will triple in the next three weeks, you're actually going to put money into it, right? If you actually believe that God loves you, you're going to do something with that. You're going to do something about it. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothing and is short of daily food, and one of you says to them, hey, go in peace, be warm, and be full. But you don't give them anything that they need. What use is that? What good is it if you see somebody who needs something and you just say, have a great day. I'll pray for you. In the same way, faith all by itself, faith that doesn't produce good deeds is dead and useless. Faith that doesn't produce good deeds is actually dead and useless. Now, before we, we lean into an idea too far, James is not saying, James is not saying that we gain standing with our Father through what we do. Okay, stay with me here. James is not saying that we just do things that make it look like we're followers of Jesus or that we love God or that we want to honor God. James is not saying that it's what we do that puts us 
with, with our Heavenly Father or puts us in right standing with our Heavenly Father or makes it so that he will adopt us into his family. What James is saying is that when we realize, when we realize that we've been adopted, we can't help but live in certain ways. And if we're not living in certain ways, are we really a part of the family? Have we accepted who we are? So we've got to be careful to keep keep it in the right order, that faith is not just going out and doing a bunch of stuff. It's actually trusting our Heavenly Father, which is an internal belief. It's 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 an internal trust, but it's always reflected in what we do. It's always reflected in what we do and how we live our lives. You say you have faith because you believe there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this. James gets a little like in our business, doesn't he? (laughs) Kind of rubs us the wrong way sometimes, makes us a little uncomfortable. He's like, so you believe there's one God? Awesome. Even the demons believe that. You're in line with the demons. You're in a good place, right? (laughs) You've made it that far. Then he says, how foolish. Can't you see that faith without some sort of good deed is useless? Faith is not just a verbal or some kind of mental formula that we work up within us. Trust. Trust is leaning in. Trust isn't just the understanding that this chair can hold me, but it's acting upon that in a way that I can put my weight on it. That's trust. It's leaning into it in all of our daily actions. It would have been bad if the chair would have fallen when I did that right there. (laughs) And then James gives us a couple of examples. And I love this. And then we're going to get kind of practical. The two examples that James gives, I think this is beautiful for those those of us in today's world. The first one he gives is Abraham. Um, Abraham, Father Abraham had many. Some of you remember that. Okay. Um, three of us, sorry. For those of you who don't know what I'm doing, don't worry about it. I'm sorry. So Abraham is known as, the, as kind of the father of Judaism, right? And so he uses Abraham as an example of what it means to actually have faith, that Abraham had to do some things to act out his faith. And this was credited to him as righteousness. So he, he writes about that. So for some of us who are within the faith, and maybe we've lived in the faith our whole lives, our, our families. We understand that. We know the story of Abraham, but for others of us, we're kind of outsiders, and we haven't grown up in church, and maybe it doesn't all make sense to us, and we think, well, do I have a place in this family too? And so he gives us another example. You know who he gives us as the other example? Um, Someone named Rahab. Now, Rahab's interesting. Uh, Rahab was a prostitute, and she was an outsider. She was known as as a Gentile. So someone who's not on the inside of the faith, and I think what James wants us to understand is to see it from both sides. And what Rahab did is, is Rahab, when, when, when she was in, in Jericho and the spies come in, she actually did something because she trusted God. She gave them a place to stay. She hid them from those who were looking so they could actually do what God had called them to do. She acted on her faith. She didn't just say, I think I believe God, but I'm actually going to do something about it. I'm going to give you a place to stay within my my house. These two examples of actually doing something 
with their faith. Abraham and Rahab give us a picture of what it means to walk it out. Okay. So I was thinking about faith and, and living it. And I was trying to think of what, what brings it home to us. What, how, how, do we, how do we take this? Because I think we, we can all say, okay, I get it. It's not just about hearing it or reading it. It's not just saying I, I believe something, but it's, it's about doing something. But what brings it home to us? Like where, where can we find some, some handles for this idea of faith, this concept of faith? And uh, we're, we're, we're unapologetically Christ-centered here. So Jesus is at the center of our faith. And I was reading through some of the stories of, of Jesus that had to do with faith. And the one that just we can't look past is this story where um, Jesus is gathered all these crowds and the people are hungry. And you know the, the disciples want to send him home to get some food. And he said, no, 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 we, we've got plenty. And they're like, we have plenty? We have like five pieces of bread and a couple of fish, and there's 5,000 men and women and children here. What do, we, what do you mean? And Jesus says, no, no, that's, that's plenty. Just bring it to me. And he prays, and they give the food out, and 5,000 plus eat, and then they, they have leftovers. Now, how awesome is that? So you have this unbelievable picture of God providing everything that the people need. And then Jesus said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hang out here and, and pray, and I, I want you disciples to jump in the boat and head across. He didn't call them you disciples, but he's head across the lake and I'll meet you there. So they get in the, the boat and they're, they're rowing across the water, this lake, the Sea of Galilee. And it says that a storm or a strong wind blows upon them. And you have this picture of the disciples, many of them who are fishermen, so they've lived much of their life in a boat. They understand what it means to to row a boat and fight the wind and get through it. They, they get it. But they're finding themselves struggling and not being able to get to where they need to go. And I think we find ourselves there a lot in life. We live in a world and we feel like we should be able to get through. We feel like we should get where we want to go. And we we are rowing the boats, and it feels like we're going nowhere. Can anybody, can anybody understand where it's like, I just, I'm, I'm trying, but I can't get anywhere. They're battered by the storms and the wind, and the disciples are just fighting and fighting. And then it says that they look out upon the water, and it says Jesus is walking on the water, which I find a little humorous. We can laugh sometimes. Like, and they think he's a ghost, which I would too. Let's be honest. Like if you're in the water and there's a storm and you're thinking, okay, either that's a cloud or a ghost, but it's not a person because he's on top of the water. Come on. And Jesus is, is walking on the water. And some of you would go, I don't even know if I can believe that, which I get that. I, I get that. But if we believe that God can create the whole world, Let's give him the benefit of the doubt sometimes here. So Jesus walking on the water, and the disciples look, and it's, it's a ghost. And, and Jesus says to them in the midst of the storm, don't be afraid. I'm here. Don't be afraid. I'm here. And I think sometimes faith is just listening to that voice. Don't be afraid. I'm here. Don't be afraid. I know you're fighting. I know you're rowing but don't be afraid anymore. I'm here. I'm here. 
Now, Peter, sometimes I really get Peter. Peter's like, ah, it's not you. If it's you, tell me to come out and, and walk to you. And Jesus is like, okay, come on. Let's do it. Let's do this thing. So Peter climbs over the edge of the boat. One step. Is there a rock under this water? Two steps. His eyes fixed on the one who is there, Jesus. And then Peter, with this this faith that has allowed him to take a step or two, Peter all of a sudden notices the wind and the waves and that he's not on the boat anymore. As he begins to look at all that's around him, he sinks, right? Jesus, save me. Jesus grabs him and picks him up, and he's like, you have little faith. Little faith, he jumped out of the boat, Jesus. (laughs) That's not little faith. You have little faith. Why did you take your eyes off me? Peter, you're not alone. They climb back into the boat. It says that all the disciples worshiped him and said, truly you are the son of God. Man, he just fed 5,000 people and it took that? He fed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and some fish? It took that? And then I realize I do the same thing all the time. Don't you? I do the same thing, like... He shows up and he whispers, I'm here, don't be afraid. I go, oh yeah, yeah, he's here, I'm not, I'm not alone. I can do this, I can do this. Where'd you go? <laughs> so for you and for me this week, what's God calling you to step out in faith in? Maybe it's a relationship if it's a decision that you've been putting off and putting off and putting off. Maybe you've been in that boat just rowing. You keep thinking, I, I just got to get there. And this week, the faith is just listening to your father who says, you're not alone. You're not alone. You're not alone. Maybe this week, the faith is just coming to understand that You are a child of God. You are the child of God. You simply need to live like it. Act like it. Walk it out. Trust it. Lean into it. What is it for you? We're going to close with this this last uh, chorus. And it's a song called Oceans. And as Joe and I were talking about this week and we were talking about what it means to take steps of faith, um, he said, oh, this song will just, will help us to declare and commit to some things. And this idea of him calling us out on the water where our faith can stand, trusting that he's with us. So let's let's stand together and I'm going to say a prayer and 
Maybe you want to come to one of these crosses this morning and write some things down. Maybe it's a conversation that you need to have, and that's a step of faith for you this week, and so maybe you just write down a conversation or a decision. Um, in the back of the room, and, and today I, I have a feeling that people um, may need to do this. In the back of the room are some candles, and in the Bible, light represents God's presence, and to be people of faith, we need to know that he's here, he's with us. And so maybe you need to light a candle today and say, God, just make, you, make your presence known to me. Father God, in this space, in this time, um, we lean in to you, we trust you. We pray that we wouldn't just be people who hear certain things, but that we actually, we actually become those who do certain things. Not in some effort to earn your love or your grace or your mercy or your peace, but, but we do things simply because we begin to understand who we are. So God, in these few moments that we respond to you, we pray that you would make your presence known to us in our hearts and our minds, and we pray that our response would simply be pleasing in your sight.